We are going to be looking today, if you want to open up your Bible or turn your Bible on, you're going to want to be in Isaiah chapter 61. So as we, as we, uh, as we look and we, we move into this, uh, we see in, in, the, in, in Luke, the, the gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus has been baptized, uh, that he has uh, been led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he's been tempted by Satan for 40 days. And basically now he comes back in, and he comes back into Galilee, uh, and he comes back into the synagogue there, and, and he basically takes the scroll. He, he didn't have the, the Bible. He, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and, and he opens it up, and he finds exactly where he's going. He doesn't have chapters and verses, but he, but he finds where he's headed. And, and basically, uh, it says this, and he came to Nazareth, there in Galilee, where he'd been brought up. And as, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll up and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus makes a a bold claim at this point. He's saying, this is me, that I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the awaited one. I am the one who is going to be the Savior. Um, And it's basically kind of Jesus just giving his job description here. Jesus is, is... telling us basically what he's come to do, what his job description is, and where some of this is headed. So uh, let's look at this together. Uh, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So this right here in and of itself is a, is a, is a Trinity. It's a picture of the Trinity. A lot of times uh, people say, well, the Trinity is not really in the Bible, but, and the word Trinity certainly isn't, but neither is the word Bible. Um, but certainly we see the concept and we see the idea of the Trinity and we see it play out all through even the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament idea or a New Testament ideology. It's been around for a long time. And uh, the, the Spirit, it starts with this, the Spirit of the Lord, Adonai, the Father, is upon me, whom? Jesus. We see all three there. The same as we saw in the baptism. We saw God the Father who pronounces, uh, this is his Son in whom he is well pleased. Uh, something, the Spirit descends upon him as, as something like as the form of a dove. And then we see that who is it upon? It's upon Jesus. Again, the, the Trinity. We see in the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, that it says that, that uh, that, that the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. We see the Spirit, and then we see that God Himself, the Father, spoke. He did what? He spoke with the spoken word, and all things were created. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So we see that that spoken word, that idea of the Word, was Jesus, and we see the Trinity involved always in the creation and in the redemption of humanity. So they are, they're involved, all of these are one God, involve themselves in our salvation, in God's plan for salvation. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed. There is an anointing upon him. And anointing was generally they would anoint with oil and it was a covering. And this anointing was, was the idea, it had the idea of a mission or, or the, uh, uh, it was a proclamation of a mission or, or a job or an assignment that was, begin, was being given. There were three positions basically that we saw this anointing happen on. And we saw that happen to a prophet. A prophet themselves, they were anointed when they were a prophet of God. There was an anointing that was upon them, not just a commissioning and an anointing in a spiritual kind of a sense, but literally they would be anointed and covered with oil. Luke 13, 33, Jesus says this, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus proclaims himself to be a prophet in here, and, and a prophet is one who, who speaks the truth. He speaks the truth over us. Remember, prophesying is not always a telling of the future. It's a forthtelling, many times, a reminding God's people of what God's intention was, what God's word is, reminding people as they had strayed away, as they had gone away from God's word, to come back, to get back to center and ground themselves back in what God was calling them to and who God is. It was a reminder that he was telling. Now, there were many times, too, when Jesus does that. Remember, he says, you've heard it said, but I, tell, but I say to you, right? You've heard it said this way, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus kind of takes everything. And, and when he takes the law, sometimes people are like, oh, say, boy, he just eradicated the law. No, he didn't. He actually complicated the law a whole lot by taking us to a deeper level. You've heard it was said you could just put your wife away. But I tell you this, if you even have lust in your heart for a woman, you've committed adultery, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Now, now we've taken it into a very deeper level. And Jesus began to, as a prophet, reveal to us and show us what true righteousness begins to look like. True righteousness doesn't even, enter, doesn't even uh, it doesn't entertain a thought even. And it reveals to us our inability in our own selves to be righteous, because when we look at those kinds of standards, we're like, man, I can't attain to that. I, I can't do that. I can't perform that well, and which is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't work on it. You can't be good enough to have this. We need something deeper. We need something outside of ourselves. The other position that was an anointing was, was the priest. Hebrews 3.1 Jesus says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was our high priest, and he was a different kind of a high priest where the priests were making a, a temporary uh, sacrifice that would atone and cleanse for a short amount of time. Jesus, his sacrifice is once and for all. It's finished and it's done, and then he sits down at the right hand of Father and makes intercession for his people all the time. Completely finished, done, but he himself is a priest as well. This anointing as well, it was also an anointing for kings. Jesus is also king. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. See, He's a king. 
And a king is one who possesses a kingdom, and he conquers enemies. And this is Jesus. He's the prophet, he's the priest, and he's a king. He's anointed in all of these areas, and he's walking forward into life with us. He has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. Now, good news, again, it's this concept. It's a, the Greek word that we would have is the gospel, and gospel simply means the good news. And when there was a new king that had moved into a kingdom or a territory and he had taken out uh, over, he would send out his gospel message to those who lived in that land, proclaiming the goodness and all of the benefits that they were going to now have because of his leadership and because of who he is. You see, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ that fundamentally tells us that we can be at peace in our relationship back to God because of what God has done for us, because Jesus died on the cross and, and took sin upon himself, then he now opens the way, he tears the veil and makes a way for us to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God where we are a sinful and fallen people, a people who have done things that were wrong, people that we have things in our past and in the closet that we wish just weren't there. We can have a relationship with God because those things can be forgiven through what Jesus has done. He's the priest who's made sacrifice, not of something else, but of himself so that we can have a relationship with him. And this is the good news. The good news is this. The good news is you don't have to try to be good enough. You don't have to try to have it all together. You can't. But through a relationship with God, we can be restored and we can be made new. That we don't have to try to normalize all of the dysfunction of our life anymore. We can actually become a new creation, created anew in Christ, seen by God as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do was to set us free and to set us free from the bondage of the law of just constantly from some external stores trying to, to do enough good works so that we could somehow balance out that thing to where at the end of the day we could say, gosh, I've done more good than bad in my life, therefore I'm okay. You see, this economy, it's not based in performance. It's not certainly at least not based in our performance, thankfully. The performance that it's based in is Christ and what he's done for us, what he's accomplished on the cross, that his sinless and perfect life was offered once and for all for ours in exchange so that we could receive the gift of salvation. This is the good news that Jesus has called and he's come to bring, but he's come to bring it to the poor. When we look into the Beatitudes, the very first one is blessed are the poor in spirit for they Shall, they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. It's the poor in spirit. It's, it's only when we have a recognition of our need that we, that we can't do it. That we, it's only when we've got to the end of ourselves and when, we've, when we've, we've done enough carnage in our lives and we've burned enough things down that we start to recognize that, you know what, I actually, I don't possess this. I don't have it. I thought I could be good enough, but, but, but I, you know, I swore I would never do X again, but then man, I didn't even make it till Friday. I don't know about you. But see, that's the thing is that this isn't based on works. It's, it's based on Jesus' work, not yours. And, and, and so this gospel is really only for those who have a recognition of their need because, you see, you won't need a Savior. You won't call out to a Savior until you recognize that you need one. You'll continue to try to just do it yourself and be sufficient. You'll try to be good enough. You'll try to balance out those scales. But I'm just trying to tell you that Jesus has come to free us 
from the bondage of just trying to be good people. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's a completely different thing. He didn't come to just try to make you good. He didn't call you to come to church today to be good. He doesn't even call you to leave here and go do a bunch of good things. What he's calling you to is to be connected to him, is to be rooted and grounded in him, to, to, to find a source of life that's outside of you. And when we root into that and we, 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 we find our identity and our purpose and our meaning of life in that, then good things just start to come out. They're no longer things we're striving for from the outside. We're not, it's not like the world is trying to tell you that you're only somebody by what you possess or by how many people you influence or how big your following is or how much money you have or how great a car you drive or how big your house is. See, the world begins to foist identity on people by saying, this is how you're somebody. But Jesus says, no, you're somebody because I made you somebody. And, and, and the, the relationship of life is found within him because he's the creator of all things. And so when we're separated from him or we separate ourselves from him, we're separated, we're cut off from life. But, but you see, when we're dead, we can become alive again by just getting back to him. And that looks like repentance and coming back. But, but it's the idea of poverty, spiritual poverty, until I recognize that I have a need, that I don't have a strength within myself, I won't hear that message So he's come to preach the good news to the poor. And that's where it starts. It starts with salvation. See, up until salvation, your spirit is is, is shut off. It's it's closed off from God because of the sin in our lives. We can't really hear from God. We don't really get it. We don't understand it. If if you're anything like me and, and how I used to spend my life spiritually, I was like going through a spiritual buffet line, creating my own belief system. I'd have a little bit of that and take some of that. I don't believe that, and I do believe this, and I don't that. One day I came to find out that I was the god of that system and that the problem with the system that I was living in was me, an idiot was running my life. (laughs) And there was a real problem with that, and I found that I had to have something outside of myself. And so it starts there. It starts with this recognition. It starts with this baseline of being reconciled in our relationship with God and where I was spiritually dead and separated. Now I'm alive and I'm connected and I can hear again. That's where it starts. See, the Bible says that the, that, that, that the, uh, that the natural man does not discern or understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually understood or discerned. And until you're spiritually plugged back into God, you're just not going to get it. It begins there. But now it doesn't end there. And I want us to start to see this progression, you see. He's come to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind the brokenhearted. See, here's the deal. We all have a broken heart. Something has broke your heart. Somebody has broke your heart. Something has broke your heart. Tragedy has befell us. There's all kinds of things that we need Jesus to bind up our hearts. And see, we can, we, we can have a couple of approaches to this. We can either ask and we can, we can receive, we can ask him to heal us, or, or, or we can just try to do it ourselves and try to be strong enough again in this whole economy that we try to live in where we try to just be enough or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or try to pretend like it doesn't exist, stuff it down into a dark place. But you know what? It starts to leak out all over your life and all over everybody else around you until it's dealt with. 
We've got to deal with the brokenness of our hearts and, 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 and what's happened to us and what we've done even. And we've broken our hearts in so many ways and our hearts have been broken in so many ways. But he's come to bind up, to be attentive to your heart, to bind that up and to bring healing into our hearts. It goes on to say, to bring liberty to the captives. And liberty is freedom. And see, there's a law of liberty that brings freedom. James talks about a law of liberty. Many times we don't think about law and freedom and liberty at the same time, but, but the Bible does. You see, because there's, there are always parameters and there are always things, there are boundaries that, in which freedom actually exists. You see, freedom isn't doing what you want to do. If you just do what you want to do, it won't really lead you to, to freedom. If you're like me, it'll, it'll lead you to bondage. It'll lead you into bondage to something. But the law of liberty sets us free. It's understanding that, that really freedom is doing what keeps you out of bondage. It's, it's doing what keeps you out of bondage. And God has given us instruction in that. And, and so if we live in this world of law, then you have to understand that when you've broken the law, that there is an accuser that comes against you, that begins to bring charges into your life. And, and the Bible names him to be Satan. And, and, and you, you live under that accusation and under that law, but there's a, a law of liberty and freedom that sets you free. That again, where he tells you, you your actions, Jesus begins to tell us, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're much more than your actions. You're not, you're not reduced simply to your actions. You see, the world is trying to reduce everybody and their identity to their, to their actions. And God says we're much deeper than that. That he's created us to be something more even than that. And, and you see, the idea of being captive is, is those who are taken in a war. It's those who have been drug off. You see, you can be held captive to something, and you can be perfectly free on the outside, but being held perfectly captive on the inside. And Jesus has come to free us from that kind of captivity. Addictions, all kinds of addictions that we're struggling with as a culture and as a people today, and anxieties and all kinds of things, things that are holding us captive, things that are limiting our capacity to live the life of freedom and the life of Christ that, that, that he's really, that he's purchased for us. But you see, he's come to proclaim that over your life. And I would encourage you to begin to proclaim that over your life, where it's the enemy or Satan has some area of bondage in your life. Begin to proclaim that he has no right there. That you're, if you're a child of God, that you've been purchased, that you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, and that he now has no authority over you whatsoever. Man, like it. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. He's opening prisons. And as you start to think about a prison, most likely, most of the time, a prison is someplace that you landed yourself. To be captive is to be carried off by something else or someone else. But to be in a prison many times is, is, is a lot of times the, the effect of what we've done. And you see, a deep need that you and I have is to be forgiven and to be let loose and taken out of that prison, to, to understand the reality that the prison door, that you might be sitting in prison or think you're sitting in prison, but the door has been open and all you got to do is go up and push it up, open and walk out. That, that, that Jesus has come and he's bought freedom for us. And even the things that I've done, the things that in my life where I just wish I could go back and I could undo them, but I can't, you see... He's, he's, he's come to say you don't have to live in the, in the freedom of your sin forever. 
You're not just you're not charged to just stay there forever. You're you're free, and you can leave that. He's come to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His favor upon you. It's grace. The idea of grace is simply receiving what we don't deserve. God's goodness and his love towards us, his, his perspective towards us, his position towards us, it's all his grace. See, God built this into the, to, to the belief system of the Jewish people, and, and, and after 49 years, seven, seven, seven years of seven-year cycles, there was a year called the year of Jubilee. It was the year of the Lord's favor. It was the 50th year. It was, it was, a, it was a release from debt. All debt was forgiven that year. All slaves were set free, and there was a return of the property back to the original families or ownership. It's an interesting concept if you really begin to think about it. All the slaves, you couldn't hold us. After the, the year of Jubilee, everything was freed. They didn't plant any crops that year because God wanted them to understand their dependence upon Him and His provision for them. Because why? Because we have a propensity to start to think that it's, it's my provision that I'm the one who's doing it. I forget that God owns the earth and all that it contains, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all His. And there's a need for us to acknowledge that. But this place, too, where, where there was this, this year of favor and all debts were paid, all slaves set free, and the land returned back to its original owner. You think about that in a... In a, in a I was thinking about that from an economic perspective. It's kind of an interesting one. One of the struggles with capitalism is, is runaway capitalism, and we're experiencing that right now in our world. Um, I think that the top 26 people in the, in the world right now control the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.7 billion people. 26 people, 3.7 billion, same amount of wealth. So when you get to a certain place of wealth, there, there's, the, there's, there's no limits to capacity of what you can kind of roll with, Right. But God has this thing that kind of is like a reset to where the land went back. It, it wasn't like socialism, which stifled the idea of, of trying and, and pursuing something further because you, you still held all of the benefit of, of having the land. It's just that the year of Jubilee, it went back and it was kind of a do-over, kind of an interesting perspective. God tends to know better than we do. I don't know that anybody's ever actually lived under uh, that, but... But it's, it's probably a good plan, I bet. God's got it. Uh, the next part, the day of vengeance of our God. It's a harsh thought, but here's the deal. He's the God of justice. And God is going to write the books one day. And, and maybe something has happened to you. Maybe something in your life that you've struggled with. And, and maybe you're struggling forgive or you're struggling to, to be in that spot of being able to let that go. And I'm just going to tell you that, that, that there's one way to do that, and it's through forgiveness. That if you're bound to an event in the past, if you're chained up to something and it's leaving you unable to move forward in life because it's holding you captive and it always just brings you back to that in the past, the way out is to forgive. And forgiving isn't, isn't an acknowledgement that what was done was okay. It, it's simply refusing to be bound to that event. It's for you. It's for you, and it frees you, 
And, and, and sometimes when something particularly heinous or difficult or hard has happened to us, it, it's hard to let go of that. But, but I'm just going to encourage you here to know this, that God is the only one who will rightly judge one day. And, and regardless of what has ever happened to us, that really what we need to do is give up the idea of being judge, jury, and executioner. And we need to understand that one day the God of perfect justice is going to set the book straight. And we need to just leave that to him and understand that he's going to do that. He's the only one that can do that in the right way. To comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. Again, another beatitude, right? That, that, uh, that he would bring comfort to us. And what? why? Because in the brokenness of this world, this is the message that we need to hear. We don't need to hear that everything is going to be fine and everything is going to be just dandy because it's not. There's real pain and there's real difficulties. There's real hardship in this, in this body right now. There's real pain in my life. There's real things that I'm dealing with. It's, it's snuck in. Death is snuck in and it's a thief. And we need to know that this God that we're talking about gets us and that he's a comforter and that he comforts us and he, he comes to that place of mourning and he's not afraid to touch it. He's not afraid to get in there and to bring healing and to comfort us in those hard places. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to, to grant there it has an idea of, of to deed or it has a, a tie to land to it. And I think what he's saying here is, and I could be wrong in this, is, is that those who are mourning in Zion, he's talking about a restoration of their land and, a, and bringing them back into that place. And then listen, it says to do this, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. See, Jesus wants to give us a garland, a headdress, instead of ashes. Where so many things in my life, I've burned them to the ground. I've, it's an ash heap, but, but, he, but he wants to rebuild it into something useful, and he's the only one who can. I, I don't care what your downfall is. I don't care what you've done in your life. If you'll actually pull it out of that dark place where you've been trying to hide it and pretend like it doesn't exist and bring it to the Lord and get right with him in it and then allow him to make a tool out of that, it'll change everything. It'll lose the capacity to shame you. It'll lose the capacity to, to have you try to cope with that dark thing in unhealthy ways. And it'll become a useful tool and you won't mind getting a hold of it and, because he'll rebuild it into something great. It's, he'll, he'll crown you with something different than an ash heap. The world is going to leave us in an ash heap and he's going to pick you up and he's going to make a crown out of that. See, in Eastern thought, the, the, the head is the highest place. It's the place of honor. The feet are the lowest. They're the place of dishonor. But he was going to crown us and give us something in, instead of ashes. And it's a covering. It, it covers our head. Remember, he reminds us always that we're the head and not the tail, right? You're the highest place. And then it says this, it says that he shall give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, an anointing, this idea of oil, of the Holy Spirit, of an anointing, of a purpose, of a calling, of ascending kind of a thing that he wants to do that. So he's, he's going to lift us up out of the ash heap of our life and he's going to crown you and then he's going to anoint you so that he can send you. He's, he, he's got a plan A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. 
Some says, some uh, versions say a mantle of praise, a covering again, a, a, a position of authority, a mantle to hold a mantle or to, to, to have a mantle was, was to have a position of authority. So he's going to pull us up out of the, the ash heap. He's going to crown us. He's going to anoint us and give us a place of authority. This is the God that we're talking about. And then it says this, that uh, it's the mantle of praise, and I want to I emphasize here the power of praise in our life. When we begin to and continue to praise God, even in the difficult and the hard things in our lives, it's that praise that lifts us up. It's the praise that invites the presence of God. It's the praise that causes the enemy to flee. It's the praise that takes the attention off of you and the struggle that you're going on in through, and it puts it on God, and it completely reframes it. It's a powerful, supernatural thing. It's a thing that's counter to the world, is to continue to praise God in the midst of difficult circumstances and situations. A hallel was what the Hebrew people called it, and it was a song of genuine appreciation for the great actions or the characteristics of the object. And by extension, it represented the character of God and all that was worthy of praise. So when we continue to praise, we're living in the power of God. We're inviting the presence of God. Psalm 22 verse 3 says that he inhabits the praise of his people, and that which he inhabits, the enemy must flee from. And we remind him that we are a child of God, that he has no position and he has no authority over us at this point. Because he has lifted us up out of the ashes and he's crowned us with something. Now, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, a position of authority and, and, and all of these things instead of just a faint spirit, instead of a spirit that is just withering under the weight and under the toil of all of these things and what the enemy would bring to us. And then let me just say this, there's going to be a shift. See, there's a shift, and all of these things really are basically a discipleship issue, is that we learn salvation, we experience, we receive salvation, but then from there, we begin to work out what was worked into us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling kind of a thing. There was something that was worked into us through Jesus' work, now that begins to work out, and, and, and part of being healed and growing and learning and walking spiritually. It's all part of this thing. It's discipleship. It's getting healed up so that we begin to do ministry out of a place of wholeness or shalom versus what we tend to do, which is just get saved and then get busy in ministry. And then all of the brokenness of us that's never been dealt with starts to leak out all over the people that we're trying to do ministry all over with, right? So it's about this process that Jesus really wants to work out in our lives, a work of saving a work of delivering, of, of setting us free from captivity and, 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 and prisons and, and, and our broken, to bind up our broken hearts and to deal with our mourning and all of these kinds of things. But guess what? It's not just for you. It's something greater than that. It's not just about us. See, Jesus isn't doing this work in us for us. He's doing it for a bigger picture. Ah, listen, here's the turn right here. That they might become, or they might be called oaks of righteousness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That, that oak of righteousness, that big oak tree, it's a symbol of, of stability. It's a symbol of, of, of a place where somebody can come and get some shade. 
It's, again, it symbolizes stability. It stands in, in this place, this oak of righteousness of, that God's people are called to be in a planting of the Lord. It means, that, it means that He's taken you and He's purposely put you somewhere. Psalm 1 deals with this. Psalm 1 says, uh, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but he... Del- but, but, but he delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That word planted in the Hebrew means purposely moved from here, everything set up, put down in there, and firmly planted, set, stakes around it, everything. It's got, it's, it's got everything it needs, and it's firmly planted by streams of water, that this might be the planting of the Lord Why? That he might be glorified, so that God might be made famous, so that God might be made famous in the world around us, so that the world might come to know. Now listen, this becomes where we start to talk about all of the wise, and and it's about something bigger than us, and it says then that they, us, the church, shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities the devastations of many generations. This is the call of the church. This is the reason for for why we do what we do. Again, the church is this interesting organization that exists for those who aren't in it. It exists for those who aren't part of it. Do you know any other organization that actually operates or exists for those who don't participate in it? Sure, it's to equip us. There's no doubt. Now, I could take that too far. It's, it is for us, the church, God's people, not buildings, not denominations. God isn't coming back for buildings and denominations. He's coming back for his people. And God's church are his people on a global level. The church exists globally. We're simply a fellowship. We're a part of that. But we have a calling on our lives. And that call is to, is to get healed up, to come to know Jesus, to know God, to know truth, to allow him to do what he wants to do in our lives, to, to bind us up, to heal us, to change us, to grow us, so that then we can go out and we can begin to make a difference in our communities. We, we go out, we begin to make a, a simple difference in the world around us, in the, the areas of influence that are around you, in the friendships that you have. In the, in the interactions that you have at Walmart, how you treat people, you know, uh, just, just, just how we operate. When we begin to consider others as more important than ourselves, and we get outside of ourselves, and we begin to live in a different manner, you see. But honestly, we need the Holy Spirit, and we need that connection with God to do that, because fundamentally, I'm pretty selfish. I make it about me. And so Jesus says, look, the church and, and the church that I've created is, is about people who have an understanding of, of who I am and what I do, that they experience that, that they're disciples, that they're walking through this purpose, through this process, and they're allowing me to do this so that then they might go out and they might rebuild the devastation that's out there, that they might go and be, build up uh, cities, that we might go and repair that which is broken. And so this is our theme. This is where we're going. This is the lead-in into Nehemiah for next week. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be just looking at this idea of just, you know, with Nehemiah, he, God just put it on his heart 
and he began to go out and build. And people began to join him in that building. And you see, I want to emphasize that we're not the ones who are building. Jesus, he builds. Jesus is building his church. Try is not building Jesus' church. Jesus is building his church. And against that church, the gates of hell cannot prevail. They can't do it. And I remind us this, that the gates, gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are a defensive weapon. And so what that means is that the church is pounding against the gates that are holding people captive. The prison that people are in because they're in addiction, because they don't understand truth, because there's confusion and all of these things that the church is meant to be pounding against those gates until those gates break open. And all of those captives and all of those prisoners are running out into the freedom that Jesus has bought. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just praise you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who isn't just a savior, but you are a redeemer and that you are a healer and that you are a sanctifier, that you are moving us to a place of holiness, that you want to do a work in us. And that work doesn't just stop with us. It doesn't just stop in the place of selfishness. No, it extends out into the world and into the community around us. And you're calling us to make a difference in the world that we live in. You're calling us to, to live in a, from a deeper place, to, to exist in you and your spirit and what you're doing. You're calling us to allow you into those dark places, into those places that we don't even want to look at or touch anymore and allow you to bring your healing, to bind it, to, 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 to bandage it and to heal it ultimately. That it wouldn't just be an open wound that's bleeding all over us and all over everybody around us, but that eventually it would, it would become a scar it would be something that certainly we remember, but something that, that doesn't bleed every time it gets touched. So, Lord, we thank you that you are so good. And we thank you that you love not just us, but you love our community. You love this world, that you died to purchase it back for you. And, Lord, I'm just praying that we would be sold out for your purposes, that we would have a heart that beats with your heart, eyes that see the world the way that you do. And, Lord, help us that as we go out this week, that we just plug into you, that we just are sensitive to what you're doing in us and around us and what you want to do through us and help us to just be obedient to follow through, to, to follow through in, in, in what seems like maybe at times something very small, something very insignificant. But God, we know you to, to be the God who takes the small and the ins, in, insignificant and you magnify it into things that we could never think of or imagine. And so, Lord, we just, we're grateful for this day. And we continue to praise you and to hold you high, to glorify you and magnify you. We want to make you famous in this world that others might know you. In Jesus' name, amen.